0: To share with you a few excerpts from an article that really arrested me this week in my study as I was reading. But I was intrigued by this particular article. It begins: How do you get a hyper-driven med student to slow down and deeply attend to the patient before her? That question bothered Dr. Irwin Braverman, the Director of Medical Residence at Yale University School of Medicine, and so uh, he noticed that his busy, tech-savvy, data-rich students zipped through their patient exams without stopping to observe the main focus of the medicine, the patients. And in 1998, he teamed with a local art curator and developed a novel mandatory course. First-year med students had to take a field trip to a local art museum where they gazed at various paintings and then described what they saw in great detail. Ravaman tells his students, approach the work with an open mind, moving past first assumptions, revisit the subject again and again. And one med student commented that these deep observational skills, quote, made me notice things that my eyes had just not seen. So taking my cue from the author of this article, I have to say, as a pastor of a church and more importantly as a member of this church, I must consider a question similar to that which bothered Dr. Braverman. How do I slow down and deeply attend to my relationship with Jesus, the Word of God, while also maintaining the ministry that I am called to as a shepherd to his people? And beyond that, how can we collectively, a busy, tech-savvy, and data-rich, activity-rich church, Find time and energy to maintain a vibrant and ever-growing relationship with Jesus, the head of the church, while still noticing and attending to the needs of people. As the poet Denise Levertov once prayed in one of her poems, quote, I stop to think of you, Lord and my mind at once like a minnow darts away into the shadows. As Matt Woodley admits, sometimes I have the spiritual attention span of a minnow. And the culture that we're swimming in doesn't help, does it? The stats don't lie about our heightened distractibility. The average attention span has dropped, get this now, What do you think the average attention span? I asked my wife this yesterday. What do you think the average attention span of an adult is today? What do you think? Three minutes. minutes. That's what my wife said, too. Well, get this. In the year 2000, the average attention span was 12 seconds. And in 2015... It dropped to 8.25 seconds. Little wonder, since an American on social media receives 54,000 words and 443 minutes of video every single day. Add to that the distraction of what Chicago pastor Aaron Damiani calls the outrage du jour. He says, every month there's a new outrage demanding my attention. Have you noticed that? If you're a pastor, you notice that. One of my biggest distractions is the urge to address every one of them right now. So, how do we respond? How do we keep our focus? I believe the only answer is counterintuitive. The answer is to go deep. And specifically, deeper in love with Jesus. As author Bob Sorge urges us, it's vitally important that we keep first things first. Clearly, for the church at Ephesus, whose messenger, possibly the pastor, was being addressed in the second chapter of John's Revelation, Jesus had some pointed remarks concerning the propensity that we have not only as individuals, but also as a church as a whole, to become distracted from the greatest thing and thereby bumped off course in our mission to introduce people to Jesus Christ and help them to become his committed followers. Capitalizing on the words of the opening article's author, Matt Woodley, I believe that in a distracted, outraged, shallow culture, people begin to hunger for something rare, the focused the balanced, and the deep. Deep loving relationships with Jesus and with each other is still, I am convinced, it is still our best chance of changing lives. We need then to return to what Jesus says the church is really all about. So turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, if you would. As you know, we're in the middle of a series uh, on the church, and we're beginning now to look at the seven churches of Revelation and Jesus' words to them, because I believe very clearly that if Jesus had anything to say to the church today, it would be found right here in His timeless Word. Now, there is a great debate on the meaning of these two chapters, chapters 2 and 3, for today. Certainly, there were more than just these seven churches in Asia Minor at the time that this letter was written and certainly there were more prominent ones in the area but Christ sovereignly selected them for our benefit and when the contents are actually taken apart and analyzed and observed it becomes apparent that there are various applications that we can make with these churches first of all in a literal sense they represent real conditions that existed in these first-century churches Historically, they depict conditions which have existed in all churches throughout the ages. If we look at them prophetically, these messages can be viewed as representing different phases the church will pass through from its inception at Pentecost to its completion at the return of Christ. And then if we look at them individually, these messages seem to have a personal application to every Christian's journey of faith but when viewed practically. These messages are some of the most relevant and beneficial words of spiritual wisdom that the church has at its disposal today. So if a church is to be healthy in the eyes of Christ, then it has to be listening with an attentive ear, right? In fact, that's exactly what Jesus says over and over Again, in these two chapters, at least seven different times, Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And my question to you this morning is Are we listening to what Jesus is saying? Will we listen to what Jesus is saying? This, Jesus says, is what great church is. Right? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Jesus says, first of all, that a, great, a, a, a church that is great in Jesus' eyes, a great church is a church that maintains its first love for Christ and for people. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Follow with me as I read. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent. and Do the deeds you did at the first, or else I am coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent." Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right, so we're going to look at the first church. I would call this the formal church, the formal and the fallen church of Ephesus. Now, we've all seen what Jesus is talking about. We all know it. But will it take a strong word from Jesus before we will actually choose to address it? That a church can get so distracted, so busy serving the Lord that it neglects seeking the Lord. Busy is not always better. Busy is not always better. Being busy for Christ is not the same thing as being keyed in on what he's trying to accomplish spiritually in our lives. If there's one thing that I've learned from being in the ministry, it's that a person or a church can be so focused on doing work for Jesus that we neglect the work that he is trying to do in us. Look at what Christ says to this church. He says that they were faithful workers, but they had a fatal weakness. In the midst of their work for the faith, over time, they had walked away from their focus, it says. They left their first love. And that is a danger which every single Christian and every church faces in the midst of an intense season of ministry. Serving the Lord must never supersede seeking him let me say that again serving the lord must never supersede seeking the lord it's the classic mary martha dichotomy right in luke chapter 10 verses 38 to 42 why don't you turn there for a moment and just look at this really briefly i know it's a familiar passage to most of you some of you may not be that's why i want to read it luke 10 verse 38 Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all this serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, 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 Martha. Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing's really necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Wouldn't you like to have been in that house? I don't know. We are in the house, folks. (laughs) And here is the gist of that text. When serving the Lord, supersedes seeking the Lord, this is what takes place. Now, I've already preached this passage before, so I'm just going to give you the highlight right here. When serving the Lord, supersedes seeking the Lord, ministry becomes stressful. It distracts us and distresses us. Look, and Martha's distracted in verse 40 with all her preparations, right, She's not focused on Jesus, she's distracted by the 54,000 words and the 443 minutes of video about Jesus on GodTube, right? Ministry becomes stressful. Secondly, when serving the Lord supersedes seeking the Lord, ministers become selfish. We become divisive, and we become demanding. Look at what Martha does. She actually remonstrates with Jesus. Jesus, why don't you tell her to get to work? I'm doing all this work by myself. She's actually telling Jesus what to do. When serving the Lord supersedes seeking Lord, guess what else happens? Our mindset becomes superficial. Superficial. We start paying attention to all the little details about things and we forget all about sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to what he wants. And Jesus said it, said, look, you know what? Mary's doing the good thing. And I'm not taking that away from her. Ephesus was a Martha church. Now, that's not necessarily all bad. I mean, really, to be honest here in this text, Jesus never told Martha Martha that what she was doing was wrong. After all, she was serving him, right? What he did point out, however, is that what she was doing ended up taking precedence over who she was doing it for Jesus. Her busyness began to distract her from what was really important, her relationship with him and the others around her, her own sister. The same was ringing true for the church at Ephesus. They were faithful workers. Look again at verse 2 in Revelation 2. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. They excelled at toiling. Christ commended them for their perseverance. This church was marked by hard work. They took 1 Corinthians 15, 58 very seriously when Paul wrote. He says, so my dear brothers and sisters, stand strong. Don't let anything change you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your work in the Lord is never wasted. It's not in vain. So in their own first century way, they may have had a program in their church for everything under the sun. Much like most of our churches today, where the bulletin looks more like a catalog than a flyer. Singles ministry, care groups, home Bible studies, 12 step programs, music teams, drama teams, small groups for men, small groups for women, small groups for kids, prayer groups, visitation, Sunday school, single moms and dads groups, youth groups, senior and junior high senior citizen ministry open seven days a week 24 hours a day busy churches work hard for Christ there's no question about it but at what expense that's the question that Jesus is asking is our frenetic activity forcing us to trade away something infinitely more valuable Oswald Chambers once observed in my utmost for his highest that the greatest competitor of devotion for Jesus is service for him so they excelled this church at ephesus at toiling they also exalted the truth which was a good thing look at verse 2 it says that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. Look down at verse 6 for another thing here. You do have this that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. They wouldn't tolerate evil teaching, they wouldn't tolerate evil men. They also hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, whatever that was, and as much question surrounding that, we'll deal with that in another church because it was something that Jesus hated. They were commended for that but the truth was their guideline, and that's a good thing. They exalted the truth. You see, doctrinal and moral purity was preserved at all costs in this church. And there are many, many churches like that today, and we need those kinds of churches today. Amen? In my opinion, and for what it's worth, there is far too much aberrant and abhorrent teaching and sinful living going on in many, many places. But Some churches are so bent on marking out false teachers and splitting doctrinal hairs and pointing a self righteous finger at unsanctified behavior that they have lost sight of their love for Christ and the compassion that we're supposed to exhibit toward those Christ came to save. There is a fine line, folks, between being doctrinally correct and spiritually corrupt. And some churches like this one at Ephesus may be in danger of crossing that line. I'll give you an example. In his incredible work, What's So may- Amazing About Grace, by far one of the best books I've read on the subject, author Philip Yancey relates a true story that continues to haunt him to this day. It was told to him by a friend who works with the down-and-out in the city of Chicago. He said, a prostitute came to me in wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. And through sobs and tears, she told me that she had been renting out her daughter to men. And she made more money renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn in her own in one night. And she had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. And he said, I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. I had no idea what to say to this woman. At last I asked if she had ever thought of going to a church for help. And I will never, he said, forget the look on her face, the look of pure, naive shock. Church, she said, why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. Now that's a familiar story that comes out of that book. But you know what? It happens all the time. It can happen here. It has happened here. I've talked to people that have walked out of this church before because the first time they returned upon being away for a long time, four or five people came up and inappropriately chastised them for not being around. They're never coming back. See, I'm just being honest with you because Jesus is being honest right here in the book of Revelation. We need to take these things to heart. Yancey comments, what struck me about that friend's story was that a woman, much like this prostitute, fled toward Jesus in Jesus' day, not away from him. When, when, When a church becomes more interested in working hard than loving Christ, that's what happens. Let me say this, if you abandon your love for Christ, your love for others will follow suit not long after. So if you are finding it difficult to love somebody else in the church today, your own brother and sister, let me ask you, you better check your love for Jesus. Because maybe you've begun to walk away from Him, your first love. So they excelled at toiling. They exalted the truth. And in verse 3, we find out that they endured some tests. Look at verse 3. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. See, it wasn't all easy at the church of Ephesus. They had their critics and their opposition. But you know what? They didn't give up even in the midst of that. They stayed at it. They stuck with it. Ray Steadman once said that when you boil down the Christian life, one virtue proves decisive in whether one ever arrives at spiritual maturity. And you know what it is? Perseverance. Perseverance. Persistence, perseverance, that counts for a lot, but it all depends on what you're persisted in. Ray Vandalon, in his description of the of the church at Ephesus. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary as it says here in verses 2 and 3. He says, These words are remarkable when one considers how challenging it must have been for the early Christians to live and minister in Ephesus. The ruins of this city enable us to better understand the faith of those early Christians who lived there and help us to discover what gave them the strength to testify of Christ so diligently in such an unlikely place. Heraclitus, a Greek philosopher and native of the city of Ephesus in the 5th century B.C., was called the weeping philosopher. You know why? Because no one, he declared, could live in Ephesus and not weep over its immorality. Give you a little background: the port city of Ephesus, located on what is now the western coast of Turkey, was the crown jewel of Asia Minor. It had a population of nearly two hundred and fifty thousand people, the quarter of a million people in those days. There's a lot of people, and it was home to more than twenty count them twenty pagan temples in this city artistic beauty cultural learning erotic pagan worship world trade criminal activity and sorcery flourished amidst this great wealth in this city of Ephesus and as residents of one of the most sophisticated cities of the Roman Empire the Ephesians enjoyed such luxuries as this get this running water indoor toilets fountains Gardens surrounded by magnificent columns, colonnaded streets paved with marble, gymnasiums and baths, a library, and a theater, a theater, mind you, that could seat an estimated 25,000 people. That's a pretty built up city for those days, wouldn't you say? And then right in the middle, Of this raucous community lived the church, the little church of Ephesus. The little church of Ephesus. This city was visited by Paul on his second missionary journey, and the soil, however, was not planted by him, the seeds. It was prepared beforehand by Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. You can check check that out in Acts 18. Paul spent nearly three years during his third missionary journey there developing this little community of faith. Timothy served as a pastor of this church. The church was also served by Onesiphorus and Tychicus, two of Paul's co-laborers. And the apostle John likely led this church before being exiled to Patmos where he wrote this letter and he spent the last years of his life after his release at that church. So what does that tell you? It tells you that they experienced some of the greatest preaching and teaching and discipleship about Jesus Christ in the known world at the time. This large amount of Christian conversions that took place in this city literally threatened the economy of the city's craftsmen whose devotion to the idolatrous worship of the goddess Artemis, the Latin name for that was Diana, was paramount here. They literally threw the economy into an uproar, the church, Christians. The temple of Artemis, which was located in Ephesus, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And here's this church, this little church of Ephesus, right in the middle of that. It's the only church in the New Testament to which two apostles had addressed letters. They had made an impact for Christ in that community. A huge impact. From their earthly vantage point, they might have thought that they were doing great. I could hear it, right? Hey, we're faithful. We're hard workers. We so value the truth in our church as our standard that we can spot a false follower a mile away. And frankly, we can take the heat of controversy. We're right in the center of it. And we've proved it. We're standing tall and we're not wearing down. This is church. From a heavenly view, they had an Achilles heel, didn't they? They were faithful workers, all right. But Jesus said they had a fatal flaw in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Hey, they may have excelled at toiling physically. They may have exalted the truth doctrinally. They may have endured the tests emotionally. But they were extremely flawed spiritually. They had walked away from their first love. Read it. Left. Not lost. They didn't just lose it. They abandoned it. The order of the words in the original language indicates an emphatic exclamation mark. Your first love, the Greek text says, your first love you have left. They left it behind. There's a huge difference, my friends, between, and I always say this when I read this text because it's so, it makes it so poignant. There is a huge difference between losing your child in a crowd and leaving your child in a crowd. The message makes it much more personal. Eugene Peterson paraphrases, But you walked away from your first love. Why? What's going on with you anyway? Do you have any idea how far you've fallen? In other words, Jesus is saying, Is this church? Is this really church? because their passion for Christ waned their profession of Christ suffered what a stark contrast to what Paul wrote about them just 35 years earlier in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 15 and 16 we read ever since i first heard of your strong faith in the lord jesus and your love for christians everywhere i have never stopped thanking god for you and i pray for you constantly Even that one of the major prayers in the book of Ephesians, I think it was almost prophetic that Paul was praying for them in chapter 3, verses 14 and 19. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being what rooted and grounded where in love rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the Saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God it's sad where they had gotten to by revelation from where they were when Paul wrote to them just three decades earlier. They left their first love. I've been thinking a lot about that. What is it about first love that is really important? Have you thought about that? Over the years as I have meditated on that thought, I naturally begin to retrace my steps of my love for my wife, Denise. I began to ask myself, what were the basic things that initially characterized my first love for her? As I thought about that, I kind of boiled it down and uncovered like three things that were present in me at the time. I had, number one, an intense enthusiasm for everything about her. I couldn't get her out of my mind. I know, you're going too much information. I'm going to make a point. Secondly, I had a longing to be near her. I didn't have a car back then. So I rode my skateboard from Kent's Hill to Winthrop just to visit her at work. Thirdly, I had a burning desire in my heart to serve her. On another occasion, I rode my bicycle to her home in Winthrop just to give her a cherry lifesaver. So we used to have this thing where we like cherry lifesavers. And then I, turned around, I gave it to her, gave her a kiss, turned around and rode back home. And as I thought about these things, I was immediately propelled into answering the next probing question, Are those things still true about my heart for her? Yes, they are. Aren't those the very things that are required in order for us to be rightly related to Jesus Christ as his church and each other as his body? Think about it. We need to have an intense enthusiasm for everything about Jesus. A longing to be near Him through prayer and through fellowship. And a burning desire in our hearts to serve Him as we love each other. Amen? Amen? You know, I don't think it's a mere coincidence that Paul describes the mystery of the church's relationship to Jesus and His relationship to us in terms of a marriage in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. The husband-wife metaphor is paramount for us to accept as the church. I'm beginning to realize so much more why Jesus despises the divorce and calls it treachery and why my favorite designation for Denise is the one God uses in two places in the Old Testament, the wife of my youth. Because it points to your first love. I've been reading this book in my quiet time. It's just powerful, powerfully helping me to return to my first love deeply. It's a book by Bob Sorge by the name of Secrets of the Secret Place. He says in that book, the first thing is the greatest thing, to love God with all one's being. Isn't that the great commandment? It's the first thing in our lives, according to Revelation 2 here, the first love. Intimacy with God must be our first priority before anything else, even before our works of service. The second commandment, loving others, which are our works of service, is like the first commandment, according to Jesus, and yet Jesus clearly called it second, didn't he? In Matthew twenty two thirty nine. 39. It's an extremely close second and difficult to separate from the first, and yet it is still second. John Phillips noted that when Paul wrote to to Ephesus, it was the climax church of the day. When John wrote to Ephesus, it was the crisis church of the day. The furnace was still there, But the fire had gone out. With that slow but certain cooling of passion for Christ, distance from Christ had set in. It was all formality and very little fervency. cooling of the heart, said one author, which had overtaken them in relationship to God was a dangerous forerunner of the spiritual apathy, which later was to erase all Christian testimony in this important center of Christian influence. There's no church there now. It kind of faded off, out of existence. Jesus came and took their lampstand. Thus it is Ever been in the history of the church, first the cooling of spiritual love, then the love of God replaced by a love for the things of the world, with resulting compromise and spiritual corruption. This followed by departure from the faith and a loss of effective spiritual testimony. Here's the deal. Put it on the screen. It starts with a cooling, moves to compromise, and then ends up with spiritual corruption. You know, the contemporary church has been long on formulas, right? Go to the bookstore, the Christian bookstore. Ten things to do about this and five things to do about this and how you can do this by doing that. Do this and that will happen. Long on formulas and short on the exhortation and call to repentance. Jesus had one message And John the Baptist had one message when they started preaching the gospel. What was it? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus' counsel is very succinct here. Remember, he says, repent and revive the one thing, the first most important thing, or else I will remove your lampstand. Look at verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent twice, he says it. You see, the Holy Spirit is profoundly committed to restoring the first commandment to the first place in our lives. I'm not primarily a worker for God and neither are you, I am first and foremost a lover of God. That's why he saved us. Again, Bob Sorge brings piercing clarity to it. He says, speaking from personal experience, I know what it's like to get the two greatest commandments inverted without realizing it. There came a time when the Lord pulled me up short and in his kindness showed me how my life priorities were imbalanced. He said, Bob, you come to me like you come to a gas station. Would you like to hear that in your prayer time? What? What? He says, now I consider a gas station to be a necessary evil. I don't like to fill up with gas. I like to drive, he says. Don't you? But I know that if I'm going to do what what I really want to do, which is drive, then I've got to fill up with gas. And the Lord was saying to me, Bob, you come to the place of prayer in order to get filled up. And we even talk about that, don't we? I need to be filled up. So I'm coming to God. God says, you come in order to get filled up. You don't come to me because I'm the first love of your heart. You come to me to get recharged so that you can go out and pursue the first love of your life. You see, my first love, he says, was ministry. I loved to drive. I wanted to see souls be saved. I want to win my city for Christ. I wanted to change the world. I was motivated more by what I did for God than by being with God. I claimed, all my springs are in you, according to Psalm 87.7. But in fact, what sustained me most was the rush of ministry accomplishments. And I didn't even realize it until the Lord showed it to me. That's convicting, isn't it? So the Lord comes to us as He did to the Ephesians who were so successful in ministry. And He says to us, I'm calling you back to your first love. He wants us to be a people of one thing, the passionate pursuit of his face. David said, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, Psalm 27, 4 says. David chased after the one thing, the face of God. Paul said, But one thing I do, right? which was the pursuit of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus in Philippians chapter 3. Mary of Bethany discovered one thing that was needed, and Jesus added that she chose the good part, which will not be taken away from her in Luke 10 as we saw. You see, there's only one thing that is really necessary, and it's to sit at Jesus' feet and hear his words. David's one thing was Paul's one thing was Mary's one thing. It's the first commandment in the first place, the pursuit of a loving relationship with our dazzling bridegroom. If Jesus' purpose is to present to himself a pure and spotless bride then our first priority must be to gaze at the pure and spotless bridegroom. Otherwise, as Jesus says to this church, when your love goes cold, your lamp goes out. So remember your past, repent of your present, and let Jesus revive your future. John Phillips observed, love is a personal matter. We are saved one by one, and we must be restored one by one. I tell you this is a church, and I'm included in this, but we need to be restored, each of us, one by one, because the church is made up of individual believers. In John 21... Jesus asked this very, very convicting question. He said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And there was probably no more heart-probing nor soul-convicting question ever asked by Jesus than that. And not only did he just say it once, but he asked him three times. Do you truly love me, Simon? And he called him by his old name. Do you, you, Simon, really love me? Simon, do you love me? Imagine how strange the sound of those words falling from the lips of the resurrected Christ must have been to Peter that day plumbing the shadows of his very being. How penetrating those words must have been. How deep, how revealing. And Peter's like, how can you ask me that, Lord? You know I do. Haven't I done this and haven't I done that? You know I love you, Jesus, don't you? But do you, Peter, really? You see, the question is not just for Peter, is it? Truly, it's the most penetrating question for the church today, and it's one each of us must answer. How will we answer it today? How will you answer it today? You can put your name in the blank and read it and let it it saturate your soul. Blank son or daughter of blank. Do you love me?